Hi, uh, welcome to RPG Coast to Coast. Um, I'm Brian from Lost Relic Industries. And um, yeah, so here we are. <laughs> um, yeah, so who's next? The Archon. Hey, I'm Alex McCreese. Uh, I am the studio head and lead designer for Autark. We do Adventure Conquer King System. It's my second time on the show, so I'm excited to be back. Uh, we're not getting any audio from you, Bear. Sorry. Uh, while we're working on that, uh, Dancing Yak, go ahead. Hi, I'm Ari Isaacs. Um, I'm one of the co-owners of Dancing Yak, and we're right now working on a 10 through um, 28 millimeter, uh, two different lines of hobgoblins and abysmal dwarves and chaos dwarves, um, usable in Ninth Age and other systems. We will be having a starter within the next month, and uh, after that, we will have a store up with several other lines, also of different models. Um, and we have more projects for the future, some of which we've already worked on a bit, and some. That we hope to be doing. We hope that uh, you'll take at least a look and um, maybe one day take a gander at a couple of the models. We hope you like Well, we have Bear from Strange Guy Podcast. I'll introduce them. They will... Uh Hopefully be with us in a moment once they fix their audio. However, our topics are in chat here, so we'll just jump right into it. Uh, whoever would like to pick one of those topics and go from there. Well, cool. Uh, I'm going to just jump in because we've already had uh, some technical difficulties and things like that. And um, I was wondering if uh, we would want to start with how to interest people in trying an RPG system that is new to them. Sure, let's do it. All right. Now, do we mean experienced gamers that just haven't played the system, or do we mean people that have never played an RPG at all? Because I think it's two different persuasion methodologies. There's a third middle ground, too, which is the people who have played several RPGs but don't regularly play. You're right. There's a huge demographic. Sure. Um, hey, so let's start with uh, people that are, are new or pretty much only maybe even familiar with, um, uh, you know, the, the current popular round, like 5e uh, or, or things like that. Well, I will say the way I have traditionally done it is, um, first off, as the game master uh, for the local group, sort of whatever I want to play is what they're going to end up playing because that's what I'm running. Um, and they're pretty good about trusting me. In terms of very new people, I think it's a matter of, of explaining what the game is in terms of media that they're familiar with. and um, uh, uh, and then making it relatable to them. The biggest turnoff I've seen for players trying a new RPG is when the setting is incomprehensible to them. Like, you know, Tecamel being the, the sort of the, the classic example of just 
very, very hard to convince people to, to understand. Whereas like Star Wars RPG is, you know, the easiest thing in the world and the system almost doesn't matter. No, I, I would agree with that to an extent. Um, I, I really do think making it accessible to people who have not traditionally played RPGs or people who might be interested in generalized fantasy or sci-fi but aren't going to delve into something more specific, that if you make it open enough for them to be able to have their mindset of what they want to get out of a game like this, and at, at the same time, you make the rules simple enough um, I, I, I've seen the biggest problem with me getting people in my area to be able to play with me. Most people, A, don't want to sit down and have to read through rules every time they play. B, they, they don't want to have to buy three or four different rule books to have to get into a game. And C, most people, you know, with the exception of the, the, the actual community that is playing, they don't particularly like rules. Um, you know, we're talking about a generation, and especially with younger people that have grown up on video games where everything is automated for them. So I, I think there is some ground where you can have traditional rule sets, but you need to leave the option open to people to be using your, your, your setting as a guide opposed to a, you know, all-inclusive rule book that you have to follow. And I think making a lore section in there, which is big enough to really get people in, um, and to continue posting content within the, the world that people are able to access can really build the brand and allow people to be able to get the most out of it. Those are my two cents. So, As a non-big gamer, when it comes to RPGs, I don't play very well. So I'm going to kind of agree with both of y'all. <laughs> um, I, I think the thing for me that uh, it seems like it, it helps to draw people in is, uh, you know, with regards to the rules is how quickly can you explain how to play the game? Um, and, and, you know, just is it is it easy to comprehend in five minutes or 10 minutes? Um, and, and that's really a game mechanic issue, I think. Um, I think some games that are more complex are just, it's naturally going to be harder to bring new players into. But I think if you can... Uh, to your point, you know, you talk about the the video game generation. Um, I'm going to bring it up here, um, and you know, it's not necessarily like a tabletop RPG, but uh, you know, uh, when Blizzard created, um, you know, uh, their big online uh, MMO, uh, when it was new, the game was almost like a tutorial um, to teach people how to play that type of game, and. Um, I think it was. Uh, I, I think that that in and of itself helped drive people into it. It was easy for them to come in and adopt that game, and then later you would see years later where people are making these really complex, involved spreadsheets on how to min-max all these things. Um, but you first had to get them in the door, and so I think that creating and, and presenting that easy mechanic and that hey, in five minutes I can have you playing, and and some of that I think means also. Um, you know, going so far as to create pre-gen characters, um, I think that can help too. Agreed. Very much I, so. I would add as well, one thing I've had success with on games that I know the rules really well for has been to start the players off with pre-generated characters that have no stats at all. It's just name, sort of description, backstory. And, um, and then you just dive into the game and you worry about all the game mechanics for the first half of the game and then slowly start introducing them to them as they get more invested in 
the events of what's unfolding. Um, I've done that with chill and with um, riffs and with mutants and masterminds to, to good effect. I, I think that's very, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead, man. <laughs> um, it's all good. Uh, I, I, I think that that's very effective when you're trying to get local people into your game. But I think going back, the idea here is how, how do you as a designer or a publisher be able to actually make people interested in your RPG? And then again, that's going back to the veterans who are going to be playing it if they're interested regardless. And um, that, that's very helpful. And I, I agree that's the only way that if you're trying to get new players in on your own, that you're going to be able to get them down and starting it simple and then working in the rules. Um, but that still doesn't overly help the, the idea of how do you design the game in order to be able to get them in, unless you're, you're also saying that there should be a quick start guide or something for DMs to be able, or a GM, sorry, to be able to, um, you know, toolage people in. And I, I really did like the idea you were saying with a predetermined sheet um, where the stats, you know, you have to roll for, and then you do have that, you know, uniqueness to the character, but it's all set up. So you're not flipping through 23 pages to be able to even just basically set up your character. And I, I do think that is extremely helpful for a company to do and would make me much more likely to be willing to pick up their game. I actually had a question for you, uh, Archon. Um, was that, you know, when you, you mentioned using a blank character sheet, um, was that implying that they would fill out the character sheet as they went or that you as the GM had their statistics yourself? I had their statistics myself. And what they got was a Word document that had their name, uh, a short character description, uh, a short background. Uh, a good example is the Mutants and Masterminds campaign I ran. I started all of the characters off before they, quote unquote, had gotten their powers and did sort of short 15-minute mini scenes with each player of them first discovering that they have superpowers. And then we did about an hour of them all being recruited by the government to come work for a super group. And only at that point, when they had their government testing and their trial, did I share their character sheets with them as to sort of what their characters could do and start to explain it. And so I made the process of them as superheroes having their origin story be the same as them as players learning the rules of the game. And that worked really well. Yeah, that's actually a pretty neat idea. Um, it, you're basically offloading all the burden of mechanics, just all of them, it sounds like. That's ingenious, yes. by the way. Yes. Oh, thank you. No, like, I, I couldn't see myself regularly playing necessarily a superhero game, um, but that would be enough to be able to get me in. And I'm speaking once again from somebody who owns several RPGs and has played several with friends but does not regularly play. So I'm a little bit closer to the demographic, something like that, regardless of what the setting is, where you build your way in, where you're not just an overpowered killing machine off the bat, um, is very, very enticing. To yeah, and I think it was really enticing to the group who, who were relatively casual players um, for, that, for that particular campaign, you know, sort of a lot of uh, quote-unquote wives and girlfriends um, that... Uh, we're not going to be investing in heavy spreadsheets of min-maxing their champion's build, etc.
So the question of, you know, you guys, you, you had asked, uh, uh, how do you get people interested in your system as a whole? Man, I, I mean, I guess whoever cracks that one um, gets to be the next Pathfinder, right? Uh, that's 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 non-trivial. Right. Um, I think uh, it, it seems like one really good plan is all you have to do is start an award-winning geek and sundry um, streaming show with a bunch of actors. So that that seems to work really well. I would think mainly marketing and the luck of the draw that the the, yeah. the local groups in various areas get invested because I've seen great systems come up and disappear within a year or two because either there wasn't the interest or the player base was so fragmented. And then I've seen stuff where, you know, seeing it in beta or seeing it as a Kickstarter or whatever, I was like, that's never going to get anywhere. And, you know, those have become some of them very successful. And uh, you really don't know. It's a, it's a it's a it's a dice roll. Out of curiosity, what would we as this group think of as a quote very successful RPG at this point, given the state of the market, the industry, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Like, what's a very popular uh, or moderately popular RPG for us at this point? I'm too far removed. All the RPGs I, I, I've played within the last three years have been five to ten years out of print. Um, so I am a little detached from that. So, I mean, I, I guess there's monetary success and there's, you know, just in terms of making a great game uh, that people enjoy. And, you know, I've got to admit, i kind of withdrew myself as well just so that we could develop our game um because otherwise i would have probably been really overcome and and really frankly intimidated uh by all the great stuff that there is out there um but i mean obviously from uh you know a market standpoint you know we looked at at you know things like 5e we look at the next uh pathfinder that's coming out and you know those guys are obviously the big you know, dominant people. Um, but I don't necessarily know that that's the whole measure of success. I think that they've, they've found their niche and they found a way to reach a large audience. Um, and some of us are, are making um, more niche games uh, that, that we know that aren't necessarily going to appeal to as many people, um, but people will probably still love them. Um, one of my favorite games of all time um was uh the the original cyberpunk game um oh and, yeah awesome yeah um i love that game and i actually probably need to to get it again because i i uh i, I think i i lost a lot of my games in a move a long time ago i had the original box set that was set in 2013 before they came out with 2020 um but uh, they had a great system, I think, for combat. Um, that, Friday night firefight. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So uh, that was just, I, I thought that was pretty ingenious for what it was. It wasn't the sort of hit point system that you think of in D&D in &D at the time. And um, it, it uh, did a really good job of simulating um, what would really go down, you know, if, if you're actually exchanging bullets with somebody. It did. It was great. And I loved how uh, the cool stat actually affected your combat effectiveness. So, you know, you couldn't just dump all your points and reflexes, you know, because if you had a low cool, you suffered a big penalty. 
um, for being shaky on the draw under stress, which which was awesome. And, and um, that's still one of my all-time favorite games. Sadly, I have not been lucky enough to actually play it. I have read through the rules a couple of times, and I'm um, very much looking forward to the video game that will be however yeah, much yeah, one that uh, going back to the point you said about being able to reach niche audiences, I think that's a, a really good point. One thing I found on using Kickstarter and crowdfunding is that because you can attract whales who'll put a lot more in than your average player, you can be successful with a smaller but hyper dedicated fan base than you could in the old days. Like in the old days, you know, if you weren't reaching a large audience, you just had no way of making money. But um, you know, for instance, on my player's companion Kickstarter which did about $15,000, 5,000 of that came from one guy who just really liked it and wanted to make sure there was some stuff in there that he really wanted. So like 33% of the whole revenue was from one person. And, um, you know, he was, and it was a $10 book, so he was worth 500 customers. Uh, that just makes it possible to do really niche product. No, that's a very good point because you even take a lot of bigger companies that do stuff like video games or with with microtransactions and stuff and i, I hate to bring a microtransaction um but that there 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 are a certain percentage of the population who does want to support it or has extremely well-off jobs and it's not an issue and they just wish to help or get their models or their their game and they they are willing to to put forth from that but I, I would say more that the, the marketing and your ability to interact with the clientele properly um, is much more important than that because that will bring people in either way. Um, if you're just relying, though, off of a couple of big spenders to do it, I feel that that's a, a not the best marketing strategy, whereas if you can maximize the amount of people seeing your product beforehand, you really have a much greater success. You know, at least for me, I would much rather see the 150 people buying $10 items than one guy trying to support me and, you know, making some huge purchase. The, at least for me, the, the, the idea is to be able to maximize the amount of people enjoying my product while still being able to pay the bills for it. Um, so I do agree that with the, the, the individual big spender, the, the, the whale customer, that that can really help Kickstarters. But I think part of the thing with the Kickstarter is, especially the smaller companies, there's been a revolution in gaming, both on the tabletop and with RPGs in the last 10 years. And there's just a lot of people who want to see you know, stuff they like be successful and they want to see it continue. And I think that is the best um, customer base to go after because then you will also attract the whales if you are 100 sincere with that um, so you can only attract the whales if you've actually structured it to give the whales something to invest in though so that is true i i i think that needs to 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 be sort of a part of the business model um you know 150 people is about what backed players companion right so of 150 i had one whale and um you know a, a few score other folks um, you know, I think so. And if you're going for a niche product that I think that is the right strategy. On the other hand, if you think your product is mainstream enough that you could reach 10,000 people, then, you know, 10,000 people at $10 is definitely a lot more interesting than, you know, the one whale. No, no, I, I, I understand what you're saying. And I, I didn't equate it with it just being, um, that, that you would be offering greater incentive for somebody like that to make it worth their time. No, that I completely agree with. And I don't wish to discount the importance of that. I was just simply saying 
that I, I think that maximizing the population that you're going to be able to show your stuff to and showing that you're truly invested with it is a much more successful strategy than hoping because then the, the whale will come along anyway. Um, but that's, that's my two cents, and I have yet to base this off of anything real. So you, you have successfully you know, gone through with the Kickstarter. We have yet to launch ours. Um, I, I will see this to you that you most likely are 100% correct, and I am just talking out my ass. But well, we've so. only we've we've oh. never made a Kickstarter above 50, so I've done I've done eight, and every time they come in like 15 to 50, which is why I feel confident talking about what you can do with a niche product. Um, I, I don't feel as confident like you know what tactics you use to do a two million dollar Kickstarter or something like that. No, I have no conceptual notion of how you could do that either. Um, none. So, no, thank I, you for that information, man. I think we might have uh, Bear Claire from Strange Gods on. Let's see. I suggest in order to attract more whales, you go the Ahab route and give them a little nibble of your own person first so that they know what they could taste for and if they want more. Love it. Great. Well, what if you run out? I mean, I'm not like a very big dude. There's a a slight flaw in my business model. See, this is what a literary degree gets you. And I like my legs, so, you know. (laughs) I could use use to lose a few inches. I'm six foot four, so uh, you want to eat a couple of inches, you're good. (laughs) Okay. This went dark fast. Cool. Um... Yeah, I, you know, the this, the Kickstarter thing, um, I, I'm really excited about it as somebody that hopes to have a successful Kickstarter. I, I really uh, love the platform for the ability to reach your specific target audience. And then like, you know, you said hope that maybe there's a whale to help make sure that you can fund this thing to bring it to fruition. Um, and, and I think that's a really exciting thing. Um, the thing that I'm a little afraid of is that you know, obviously, you know, we hear stories about um, things getting abused or people not um, following through. So I think as, as you know, and it, obviously it behooves us, right, as wardens of our craft to, uh, you know, go out there and do the best that we can to represent to show that, you know, this is stuff worth investing in. Oh, agreed. And especially because the the amount of Kickstarters I've seen that haven't even had the finished product or even, you know, the test models for the finished product done or, or the, the book done and they're they're just on promises. And it's 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 very hard, at least for me, to invest in a company that I do not know anything about. And that's one of the reasons why I do think it's important making your name public and, you know, having proper communication with people beforehand to build up that confidence that hopefully enough people will have confidence in you uh, to see that you're very serious about this and that the end product will be great. And that the hope is, is in the future, there will be a lot more coming because I, I, I really do wonder what percentage of total buyers actually invest in the Kickstarter and what amount of people are just waiting till afterwards, willing to pay a little bit more, you know, to, to see if it was legitimate or not because I've invested in several Kickstarters where the people have completely walked out and you don't know who they are, there's no accountability, and you're screwed. I'm just excited I get to tell my mom that I'm a warden of my craft. <laughs> a lot more exciting than nerd. I, I'm I've just happy. To, I've been trying to improve my writing, so... <laughs> 
I'm, I'm very happy I was born when I was because 10 years before this, I don't think I could go out in public and tell people I was starting model company. Um, and it, it very much makes me very happy how the, the, the perception of gaming has changed over the last 10 years and how between just fantasy and sci-fi being on television and becoming mainstream, that the, the stigma from gaming has disappeared and it has become as normal as playing video games or, or going to a sports game. I can play with those without being judged. <laughs> so uh, we talked about this uh, a bit about how to get people interested. Do do we want to look at some of the other topics that you you guys have all pitched in here? If you're good moving forward, that sounds good to me. Yeah. I, <laughs> um, so I think the next thing that we have on our list uh, is why player agency matters, which this just sounds like a really cool topic. Someone was my contribution, um, and uh, I, I have to admit I did it with shellfish purposes because um, I'm going to shamelessly promote a book that talks about that. Um. As long as it's worth reading, you'll have some angry emails if it's not. I but, think it's worth reading. Well, then, then it's worth it. So go ahead. All right, so the book is called Arbiter of Worlds, and it is a guide to being a game master. Uh, specifically a fantasy game master who wants to run sandbox campaigns. Um, it was inspired by a book I read when I was in high school called Master of the Game by Gary Gygax, which inspired me to become a, a better game master. And I, I kind of wanted to write um, a similar book based on my own experiences. But one of the things I talk about in the book is the agency theory of fun, which is I, I think every medium has particular things that it can convey or do that no other medium of entertainment can do as well. So for instance, you know, with movies, it's big, big blockbuster special effects. Uh, with Netflix, it's long form narr uh, narrative, et cetera, et cetera. And I think what um, role-playing games can do that virtually no other entertainment medium can do is give the player agency, which I define as meaningful choice. Um, and so I think efforts to move role-playing games to be more story-like actually work against that in many ways, um, which is why I think they really should be thought of as a, as a separate genre. Um, and everything you can do to give the player more agency, which is to say more choice that's more meaningful, makes the game better. And from that, I conclude that a lot of sort of more recent trends, um, you know, such as making it very, very hard for the players to die, um, making the mechanics of the game very disassociated from the world that it's set in um, are actually steps in the wrong direction uh, because uh, they reduce the meaningfulness of the player's choices and their immersion into the world. Um, and reducing immersion in turn decreases the meaning of the choices you make in that world. I would agree 110%. Um, immersion is the number one factor keeping me involved in any RPG or video game for that matter. Um, and if I don't have the immersion here, it's irrelevant to me. It doesn't matter how well built it is. It doesn't matter how good the rules are. I, I couldn't care less. And I, I would agree with you 100% that adding things or, or making God characters or making everybody very overpowered or too much magic um, and a bunch of other factors for me very much kill the immersion factor. Um, 
And I, I would agree to you that there are certain trends, such as, you know, adding more narratives or campaigns to things, which actually is counterproductive. Um, I've always looked at campaign books as a guide for just the GM. Nobody else should be reading it. And the GM should be using that as a guide to base how they're going to go off of. Um, I, I would agree completely that the, the, the choices um, that you can make and how much, how much control the, the game master has over the campaign is, is really very, very key. And I know, at least for me, that that's been a big turnoff in the last couple of years with a lot of video games that have come out where I haven't played them because the immersion or the choices is beyond lacking and is less than games that were coming out 10, 15 years ago. Um, so I, I would very much agree with you that that, that is very important uh, to get somebody interested. You know, uh, there's an image somewhere that I saw that you just reminded me of that was a... Um... It was an image, it was a side-by-side -side comparison of a, a video game level for Call of Duty compared with a Doom level. And the, um, the one level on the one side is literally a straight path. It's run from point A to point B. And the one on the other side, which Doom, if you remember, was actually a two-dimensional game. It didn't, it, it didn't actually have three, yes. three dimensions. It was fake 3D. Um, it was, you actually had multiple paths and rooms and ways around things to get sometimes to the same objectives or places where you'd have to go back. And it was just infinitely more complex. And it said a lot because, you know, here we were in the, in the nineties and they were designing this. And then in the 21st century, they were designing A to B. Um, and you know, I, it, it's funny though, because in retrospect, I have to admit, you know, and, and uh, as a game master, I had failed at this many times. I would have an idea for something and it would become so important that I would try to railroad it. And um, I learned over and over again from having players want to do other things. And then I realized that, you know, if I didn't let them kind of drive some of this story, that it was kind of futile. It was kind of pointless. We weren't really, um, I was missing out really. And I got to the point that I just laugh, you know, now when they, you know, if, when I do something, I, I, I spend hours creating something and the, the players say, yeah, uh, we're more interested in whatever's going on over here. And they just kind of detour around it. And, and they, they suddenly become interested in an NPC that I just spun up on the spot. So, um, I've, you know, I, I, I've actually kind of learned to embrace that. And um, it's a tough thing to do. Uh, but it's it's so much more rewarding. Oh, I, I agree that detaching yourself um, from that and allowing whatever happens to happen, opposed to having some set vision of how you would like the campaign to work out, is a much more effective tool um, and is much more rewarding for yourself, even though it's a little harder to do. You know, and I think it's compounded by the fact that so many uh, books on GMing advice or the way games are written almost seems to tell the game master that his job is, you know, to be the quote unquote storyteller, the narrator. Uh, and I think one of the pernicious, most pernicious pieces of advice that's given to the game master is to say, it's your job to make sure everyone has fun. And I think, I think it's your job to make sure everyone has the opportunity to have fun. Um, but if they make decisions in the game that lead them to be unhappy, that's part of your job as well is to enforce the outcomes of those decisions. 
and the short-term gain of, oh, well, I don't want Bob to be unhappy that his character die, uh, ends up being, you know, the salt in the irrigation canal that destroys the land. Um, it, it, it ruins things in the long term. I agree with that 100%. I, I'm also going to confess that uh, in our in our beta book, I've been guilty. I, I wrote a campaign based on you know things that we have you know that that worked for us. But uh, one of the things that as we're going through and you know updating and making edits is that I'm looking at it and saying, okay, well, I need to find better ways to communicate to uh, potential GMs out there that this is probably not going to work for you. You know, that this is an example of something that was an idea, but the truth is, is you're going to have to learn how to improv or, you know, it, it's that or your games are going to be very bland. Have you considered adding an introduction to it, explaining that, that this is just a guide, you know, that this should not be taken as literal writ and that at the, at the end, I think something like that, it would be very important if you're writing out a game to allow multiple endings. That way, it gives a certain amount off the bat of player choices and forces the less creative GMs to giving a certain amount of choice to the player. Because I, I do think there are two types of players, and I, I don't know which is more and which is less, but one group, you know, the rules are law, and that's what's very important to them. And they don't wish to deviate at all. And then you have the more casual players. Um, which I, I think it's the, the idea of the setting, the where are they, are they able to be immersed in it? Um, and I, I really think if you're trying to get to a bigger audience, that putting multiple endings or something along those lines um, would force the, 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 the group, which is more rule-based oriented, to allow that freedom into their game. So to answer your question really quickly, uh, yes, uh, we are putting, <laughs> we're going back and adding um, a lot of additional help text. Uh, we've we've been doing that in our players book first. Um, I don't want to elaborate uh, much more on my stuff because I think we just had somebody else join us. We had Smunchy from Smunchy Games join, and I wanted to give some other folks a chance to talk too. Please, by all means, I'm getting tired. <laughs> <laughs> hey, guys. Um, yeah, so I apologize about being late. I'm just kind of joining into the discussion. So we're talking about game masters and players and how uh, they want to play the game, right? So we're talking about here. How to try to get people that are either not big into RPGs or, um, or I'm, I'm sorry, we, we went on to a player agency and allowing or forcing people to get more choices um, to game. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, variety is always better. If you can, if you can somehow craft your story, and uh, you know, of course, as you guys had mentioned, you know, adapt and uh, you know, kind of improv, uh, the better that story will be. So, any final comments or thoughts on this? Uh... And then I think we maybe should move on to the next one. I think we're all in agreement here. Yeah, ready to roll. Bear, are you still with us? Railways, bad. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, let's see. We have uh, 3D printing and what the future looks like. So I'm going to assume this is the future of 3D printing, not like the dark uh, dystopian future of something else. 
oh no, we're not getting into what what in fifty or hundred years the world will look like. Um, okay. I, I think when I originally wrote that out, I was referring to in the general of games, whether they be RPGs or tabletop games. Everyone can three um, D print their own indoor shades. So, so, so what what does this mean for um uh, for game designers, both you know who are making RPGs? Do you structure it more to being allowing people to have their their you know various prints and to, to be able to have larger uh, conglomerations of, of stuff on the tabletop or vice versa, traditional you know, miniature companies, uh, the transition and how you find a happy middle ground between people being able to just massively print stuff online, you know, that they're getting for free and still maintaining a market share and producing something that people will be happy with. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I say, I say do both. Um, and the reason for that is because one, they're going to be the people out there that are not hobbyists. They are not painters. They are not crafters. They're not going to take, you know, eight to 20 hours to sand something down and make it look great and flashy and then paint it. Uh, they're just going to want to play. And then you have the hobbyists that, that do want to do that. And they do want to spend that, those hours invested. And then of course, based on the model you have, you have some, some miniatures that are, meant for you know selling you have other miniatures where you can give them away for free that's what you want to do i would agree with it puddles actually brings up a good point of 3d print your own 3d printers um if there's a point where 3d printers become a household or like pretty common appliance not if um, the technology stays where it is mm -hmm. um just just throwing it out there and most people aren't super aware of this fdm printers give off particles which are extremely toxic and unless you have an enclosure taking the fumes outside of the house, it's very bad for you. Oh, and what not, What capitalist cares about toxic buildup? Oh, no, no, no. The, the things I've seen online on forums with people arguing, you know, like, I smoke two packs of cigarettes a day. I've been working with chemicals my whole life. It doesn't do anything to me. And it's like, yeah, it doesn't. But the amount of people who I've talked to who have gone and had actual problems because of it, whether resin printing and allergic reactions, which conform to a lot of the resins, after repeated exposure or that they've experienced, you know, horrible breathing problems because they put their printer in the living room uh, with their kids and their, their, you know, dog and stuff. And they're not realizing that they're breathing in all these particles. And I mean, at least, at least for me, that was about a third or a fourth of the reason why I, I wanted to bring this up to an extent was to be, you know, just, just explain to people that it's completely safe to do. And I very much would recommend to people to get into it, but just be careful and read up on the safety precautions because they are not a joke. Um, but sorry, go, go ahead. So, so if 3D printing becomes uh, a really common hobby or just something where it's as easy as browsing the internet, you just hit a bunch of buttons and you get what you want or you can order a print recipe online. I'm wondering how that's going to change um, I mean, not just like the physical market, but um, with like miniatures and game pieces, it's going to become like you're selling the data rather than the actual product. It's almost like drive through RPG. You sell people the right to print this. And I'm yes, just wondering if, that, if the market will ever turn in that direction. I think to an extent it will. Um, I, I, I've seen a large amount of 3d terrain and other companies that have been doing very well that have been uh you know selling selling the rights to to be able to do that and they tend to when they do that specialize it 
and make the terrain very easy to print, meaning there's very few outcrops and there's very few, you know, big details or it, it poles or whatever coming off of the terrain. Um, and there's been... Go ahead. Sorry, I'm imagining 3D maps to enhance campaign immersion, and I would really be into that. Well, people have started doing it. I mean, there's there's the standard dungeon crawler maps, and there's like 20 or 30 companies at this point who are producing them for FDM printers where you can get the rights for 100 or $50. And there's even free ones on the Giveverse. Um, and you can print out, you know, what 20 years ago would have cost you 500 or $1,000. And it's not the same quality, of course. Um, but you can print out whatever you need very cheaply. And I, I do think that it, it, it's given a revolution to, to gaming. I, I thought several years ago that it would kill off the traditional model companies even by now. Um, and what I've seen, at least from my, my, my impression, is it's actually given a renaissance to smaller companies. And it's allowed people who you know, might have done a little bit of sculpting by hand to, to be able to actually put out stuff on a much higher level than they would have ever been able Well, how do you and protect I, your... MDL files and stuff because somebody's probably just going to steal them, right? I mean, I've got no idea. At some point, we're going to start giving away stuff for free, and we will be giving away a couple of files for the Kickstarter to to anybody who backs it. And at sure. least in my mind, from our conversations, it's once it goes onto the internet, we're we're screwed. It it's a free file for any. Like, there's no way you can then protect that or market it or anything other than just give it away for free and hope it you know people see what you're doing and they like it um, right because the, the reality is is even if you put on you know you get a copyright for it and you put it on a proper site and stuff and there's terms you know there's going to be 50 100 people who buy it and share it with 50 friends and right. it's it, it's going to happen um whether it happens on a large scale or a small scale i i don't know but at the same time i i don't know how some of the companies at this point are managing to pull in large amounts of money for selling 3D prints without it, you know, going up on various sites and just ruining them. Um, so I, I think part of that does come down to the the players and people, you know, human nature. Um, but it's my thought that once it goes on the web, it's on the web. Uh, I I agree with you. I I think it is going to be a revolutionary um, technology for the industry, but I think the revolution is is going to be a bloody one. Um, I had I had the misfortune of being in the journalism industry when when print magazines died off and uh, online took over, and um, you know the, the the mantra was that we were trading um, you know print dollars for digital dimes, um, and then later we traded digital dimes for mobile pennies as um, you know online content was so easily copied, transferred, distributed. It really destroyed the business model. And I've seen that happen over and over and over again, that every time something gets digitized, the value of it plummets. So if you think about um, that was true for journalism, it's been true for um, uh, now, uh, if you look at music, um, you know, artists can no longer really make a living just based on selling records. Now they have to be out touring all the time under yeah. these 360 deals. Um, the same thing is true of, um, uh, uh, you know, video games, which now uh, are relying more and more on keeping you online with a subscription or ongoing payments um, and so on and so on. So 
I think it's going to be a huge revolution for the miniature industry, but I worry that a lot of companies are not going to be prepared for what it's going to do to their bottom line. Um, anytime you digitize something, it tends to result in a winner takes all environment for the people at the very top and then a huge long tail um, of individual creators doing talented stuff, but the people in the middle get crushed. Yeah, that's an, sort of an unfortunate tell of uh, our, our debt-driven economy, right, is their people have um, the value of their earnings goes down every day they wake up. So, um, yeah, they're, they're definitely going to look for, for cheap. Uh, the upside, I think, though, is that um, there are some good folks out there. You know, obviously, we've seen with Kickstarter where people are willing to spend some money um to support an artist um you know i'll go out and 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 go see artists play uh even in especially in small venues you know just to support uh a band or whatever um so there are still some of us doing that but yeah i think you're right it it uh changes the landscape when people are you know offering pennies for something um that someone used to publish and sell for twenty dollars yeah, but you also have to remember, especially with models, the majority of that $20, unless you're just two or three big companies that are currently out there, is actually not that much more of a markup than you are thinking. Because you're talking about a sculptor, whether by hand or 3D, spending hundreds of hours, then you're, you're, sure. you're talking about the time spent in the prototyping and, you know, the, 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 the making of the molds and the, the cost for distribution, including the cost for keeping your company afloat. And... Um, it's interesting because when I was a lot younger, I used to think that a lot of models were very hyperinflated. And then I was exposed to the actual cost of production for models from friends of mine who own companies. And the reality is, is the majority of them are not making anything near the list price. They're making between two to ten dollars for a model set. Whereas there are a few big whales that are that are selling stuff at hyperinflated prices or artificially pump up rule systems to, you know, where they'll put two or three base models for twenty thirty dollars each, and then everything else is ridiculously overpriced. Um, what kind of UK based nineteen eighties company would do that? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Huh. I don't know them. I'm shocked and appalled. I think on the, the positive flip side of the bloody digital revolution, we're finally going to get Shadowrun. That is very true. True, true. Yeah, um, I mean, like honestly, as someone who's going to be making those minis in the future, as well as, as selling those files, um, I think it just comes down to your business model and how you're going to have to change that and adapt to it. Um, because... You're right. That that is. I think that's going to happen too. I think it's going to shake it up pretty hard. And um, I think if you, like I had mentioned earlier, if you find a way to do both, if you start molding things now, no pun intended, um, you are going to be able to um, achieve the goals that you want, still stay relevant, and people, regardless, are still going to buy the actual minis themselves instead of just the files. And as someone in the younger generation myself, I can I can absolutely guarantee you there are going to be many others that just don't want to print it out and work on it, and they're just going to want to buy it the way it is. <laughs> so, I, I um, would agree with that. 
And also another thing to keep in mind, which, which I, I don't think has been taken into account before this, is that the majority of the demographic for both RPGs and tabletop is about 25 to about 50. There are yeah. younger players, but they are few and far between. And from the analytics I've seen on everything pertaining to me and that a couple of friends have shown me from various groups and websites, it looks like it's 25 to 55 which means there's another 10 to 20 years of a big market with very small increasing growth. So I almost wonder how many of the younger people, because I know I've been able to get several of my friends involved in tabletop because I've shown them my 3D printer. I've taken them around. I've let them print off a model. I've let them paint it up. And that's actually been the in they've gotten. And then they do start going to actual game companies and buying real models because, as you said, there's a lot of people who don't want to spend the time and on top of which, unless you're using an FDM printer um, in which you're using the plastics and it's very cheap, resin is expensive, even if you get it on sale. And right. for somebody to do that um, is, is a very big investment even still. And further, the, even if you get a better printer, there is a certain number of fails. There's a certain number of miscast prints. And if you're using a resin printer, that can get very expensive, especially if you don't have a certain level of technology. Right. Absolutely. I think that cost is going to resonate with a lot of people. <laughs> oh. So I, th I think the next topic. Did, did I kill the conversation? No, no. <laughs> I think it's cute or not. I mean, I, I don't know. I do have uh, something else to chime in here, though, is that... Um, I would not have thought that um, the actual corner game store shop would still exist today. And I suspect in a lot of ways they've kind of had a resurgence. Um, although There's more now than five years ago. Yeah. So. Yeah. Sorry. And I feel like some of that may be due to TMG is they're just selling lots of these cards. But people are going in to buy, you know, and they're carrying other things. Um, and, you know, on a positive note, there was a, um, there's a game shop. I, I don't know if I'm not, I, if, if I can do this or not, but there was a game shop here, uh, Frisco, Texas, um, docs. And he had this week, um, I, you know, I went in there and he was doing a thing while the kids were on spring break, they were bringing in like grade school age kids and playing D and D five E with them. You know, all day they had, uh, a, you know, game masters set up in there and those kids were going bonkers. They were just loving it. And, um, you know, that that was a really cool thing to just sort of see, you know. Well, when you take kids who have grown up on a generation of instant gratification and a certain level of parameters within video games and they're actually able to use their imagination, and they get past whatever stigma they have of either not wanting to be invested in. They really do love it. And I know at least from my family, uh, my stepfather started us with RPGs when we were young. And there, there was a, a couple of really, really great games. Um, and I, I know I wouldn't have been nearly as interested in it um, if, if I hadn't been exposed as a kid. And I, I know at least for me that just the interaction and the being able to, to test things out within a parameter-based system you know, with somebody narrating uh, was very, very helpful to me as a kid um, with my development. 
Yeah. So, I, I, yeah, I, I'm hopeful this isn't going to go away because, like you said, it's very uh, it, it leaves an impression. You know, I, I started when I was pretty young too, and um, I, so I have hope that you know this stuff is still going to be around. Um, you know, 30, 40 years from now. But you're right. I think the business models we have to figure out how to adapt. I think that there are going to be times when it's you know we're in a sweet spot. Uh, and you know, you might be able to make a chunk of money, uh, and there's going to be a, a lot of times when it's lean as things, uh, as technology, uh, you know, takes over. Got to get them while they're young, break into the maternity ward and slip D20s into their cribs. <laughs> <laughs> you just got to take your kids to a, to a convention and let them see all the beautiful models and they'll be hooked. I, I promise you. Or, or look at all these sweaty men. Don't you want to be one of them? Um, no. <laughs> no, I was like, you know, I've never seen beautiful models at a convention ever since they got rid of booth babes. But then I realized you meant miniatures. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, when, when I was going to conventions back in the 80s, it wasn't, yeah, it was more of the sweaty folks. Um, it was very different at that time. He's and then they invented for... cosplay. Yeah. <laughs> at least for me, I took a seven-year hiatus between going to any gaming conventions and going to Nova a couple of years or a year ago now. Um, very, very much changed my impression of them because I, I had been to several for Magic when I was younger and various other systems. And I and then uh, to two, I once went to them. Um, uh, one of the other big model, uh, an actual model convention, and I, I remember I had a very negative impression of um, that. The, it, it felt like a much different community than it is now. Um, sure, and I, I hope I don't anger any of the the, the, the veterans here um, by saying that. But it, it's become a much more normalized, inclusive thing than uh, a bunch of neckbeards, you know, coming out of their basements <laughs> to. Um, you know, shoot the shit for, for two, three days without taking a shower. So um, I, I really do think that there has been a revolution in the last five to 10 years in, in multiple industries that have allowed a lot of independent growth and a lot of people who five, 10 years ago, because of the stigma would have been turned off to become very heavily involved. And I think that's a very beautiful thing. That's why I hate the term care bearer and RPGs especially, it's just don't you want new interesting people? Um, assuming assuming they're 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 fun to play with. I mean the, the people yeah, make yeah, the yeah. RPG more than the actual RPG does. So if you have a good group of people, you know, you're gonna have fun regardless of whether or not it's a bad system or not in my book. Whereas you could have the best RPG in the world or the best game in the world and be stuck with somebody you don't want to be around and it's it's not gonna be enjoyable. Yeah, I, I guess my experience back in those days, I mean, there was definitely some of that. There was definitely uh, socially awkward people. Um, most of us are. I think I probably qualify as one. Um, but um, yeah, it, it was very uh, sort of counterculture. And uh, it, was, it was sort of niche. When I tried to explain to people, you know, what we were doing, they just get blank looks on their face or you get the response of 
oh, I've heard of the Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, my church says this is bad, you know? Um, you worship Satan? Yeah. So, you know, we, yeah, it was, there was a lot of that. And I think that now that it's, it's come out um, more, you know, like it or hate it, you know, that it's, that it's out there. Um, the good news, I think, is that it is now more available and accessible to people. And, um, you know, I, I don't see how that can be bad. I think that's, that's a great thing. I, I agree with you that that's a great thing, assuming you don't try to placate a new audience by completely changing what, what made the game or, or the, the, the setting great in the first place. And I've seen that happen to a lot of systems that I love. Sure. That sure. over time, they're just trying to attract younger people or people not... who wouldn't have been interested at all remotely in the setting. And that's not a bad thing in itself, but watering it down into something generic where it no longer has its soul in order to attract people, um, I, I find to be, to, be, to be very counterproductive, even if you're bringing in a very large amount of new people. However, I do think that making yourself as accessible to as many people is important because, I mean, I imagine the reason we're all doing this to an extent is to bring joy to other people. We get pleasure out of it. We get pleasure out of seeing people enjoy what we have made. Um, and I think that's true for most people in this industry, uh, much more so than other industries, because anybody who's getting into this, it's a labor of love, um, with few exceptions. Well, uh, oh. I'm sitting here in stunned silence that you guys all didn't get into it for the money like me. Yeah, somehow I doubt that man somehow <laughs> I doubt that many other industries to get into if that was your life goal I make people Venmo me to run games there you go now that's a business model I can get behind how much do you charge an hour no you just lace the Mountain Dew with some cocaine oh my gosh you're going back I don't know what it is about <laughs> your games man I'm hooked man they're addictive <laughs> Well, we have one more topic. Um, I'm going to break the rule, uh, if there is a rule. Uh, this is fuck the chosen one's plot line. Uh, is anybody going to fess up to that one? Yeah, that's me. <laughs> uh, would you like to explain what that means to to those of us that are not in the know? So, I'm an opinionated person. <laughs> um, What's it in in the book in books you can get the chosen one plotline and you sort of have the security that like that person's gonna go from point A to point B, you know, get to the denouement, and you're not gonna have this awkward moment when they die unless it's the kind of story that's like deconstructing the chosen one plotline. With with like a lot of adventure paths, you still get the oh you've been chosen people. Except, oh no, you fell into a pit. It was This was not written in the scrolls. Oh, there's a new guy who looks kind of like you. He's the next chosen one. Um, I, I don't know, I, I see it a lot in Adventure Paths where it's, it's less recognizing that like adventurers are replaceable vagrants and just making them the most important people. And I'd really like a change. 
least on my part, I agree with that 100%. Um, the most unappealing thing to me about playing an RPG, whether tabletop or in video game form, is to be a god character. Um, it, it very much frustrates me that a lot of things are very overpowered and it doesn't feel real. You feel a step above everything else, and very few things can hurt you. And I, I know, at least for me, one of the most rewarding things is building something up from you know being just somebody who can be killed by anything and having to actually use my imagination and my mind to to, to be able to you know get past that and then if i die i die uh, i don't understand how people become so invested in their characters that they can't catch themselves from that and I'm, I'm sorry if i anger anybody there um it, it's a game and the point is to enjoy it and i, I know for me the best games i've ever played whether they're tabletop games or RPGs, I've died in all of them. Like it's not necessarily very enjoyable winning something. It's much more enjoyable having a you know a losing game where it was a lot of fun, where you really faced a great challenge. Um, and you know I, I might be on my own there, but I find that much more important to 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 be starting from something that is actually a normal base. I'm with you, brother. I die in every I'm, campaign I play in. Uh, I mean, if I don't die, <laughs> something went wrong. Um, um, I have a blast getting killed because you know it lets me be sort of the glorious, uh, the glorious hero that in real life I'm quite far from being. Um, you know, you, you mentioned your pet peeve of being overpowered. My pet peeve is when the player characters are given powers that, if applied to the universe as a whole, would render it absurd. Like, oh, as a racial power, you can teleport through walls. Okay, I can't well, do that at all. Okay, yeah, well, has your setting at all given any thought whatsoever to the fact that this completely changes the nature of human existence? No, yeah. we just hand wave <laughs> it. And I'm, I mean, at that point, I'm just done. Like, I, I have zero interest in playing that game. You need, uh, you need blinkling wallpaper to stop them coming in your vaults. That's one reason why I want to do, uh, if, if we get finished with uh, Swords, which we will, um, at some point I want to do science fiction. Because science fiction writers tend to take responsibility for those things, right? They see something and then they're like, well, how does this affect people and how they behave? Rather than just, oh, yeah, you can breathe fire, you can blink through walls. Um, sure, everybody does. Oh, and you've got wings, you can fly. Um, and not only can you fly, but you're a paladin. So I, I don't know why you have a horse, but, uh, it's cool. Yeah. Yeah. I tend to run my games as if they're the real life history of the events that later get recorded in legends. So they're still, you know, quite epic and legendary, but they're also a lot grittier, um, because they're, they're effectively war stories sure. rather than fantasy literature. And um, when I explain and, um, it to players that way, you know, I, I generally am able to get buy-in. Um, and I will say Game of Thrones has been a huge help in that regard because you're able to make the point, you know, hey, you know, odds are you're going to die because this is a Game of Thrones type uh, world. And then they're like, oh, I get it. Okay, cool. Everybody I do, dies. I do really appreciate um, the sort of post-fact poetic telling of much more complex events. Um, it, it, like if you get a sort of retro retrospective um, narrative device in your campaign, I think that could be really good, especially for like messing with player expectations. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I typically, I, I do rumor charts and I actually make up rumors based on the player's activities and then wildly exaggerate them and change them. And um, they often are stunned in bewilderment to realize that the rumors are about themselves. Oh, That's that is, hilarious. That is delicious. Yeah, when it comes to me for doing like the Chosen One stuff, um, I mean, kind of I do alter it, kind of like you mentioned there, that always ends up happening. But what I like to do is uh, the Chosen Ones are extremely powerful and they're, they, you know, kind of your typical run-of-the-mill stuff, but also everything else in the world is also extremely powerful. So even though you may be throwing magic at something, they're going to throw something bigger at you. And then that way it kind of evens it out. So, so yeah, you're yeah, powerful. You're powerful. You have you to have take, take away the destiny element that says yeah. that, oh, yeah, you're, you're going to succeed. You, that has to always be in question. Otherwise, there, there's no point. Yeah, right. Because mechanically, like, the DM always has to be able to put down the ultimate consequence of your character's dead or mm -hmm. uh, you game over, you lost the campaign. And if the story is the whole time saying, oh, these people are going to do it, they've been destined, it's like, it's, it's really hard to actually put that boot down. Bad story writing and television in particular, I think, have conditioned us to that because we see heroes in movies that, um, you know, disaster movies or whatever movie where everybody else is getting hurt and you know that they're going to walk through unscathed. And um, I still, I, I don't necessarily subscribe to the idea that a character can't be a quote unquote chosen one, um, you know, that they can't be special in some way. Uh, but I do subscribe to the idea that they can fail, even if they are the chosen one. And, and to me, that means it's actually kind of more, uh, it, it's actually kind of darker that way. You know, I mean, what if, what if, you know, your Neo didn't make it? <laughs> I, I do like that in like fallible destiny or fallible God mm -hmm. settings where like the deity that's investing their, their weight behind you isn't necessarily like all powerful. And there's a lot writing on you, kid. Fade the world. But also, something I've experimented with a bit in my own writing is, if if you are the chosen one, that's not necessarily a good thing. Because what if you don't want to be? Like, of course, there's always the um, in uh, the hero's journey. There's always the like denial of action step. But like, uh, go taking that further. Like, this is going to be point A to B, the worst thing ever. Yeah. Well, then it can be played off, but then I don't think, you know, even though you're overpowered, you're no longer in that, that, that God state, you know, overpowered, you're no longer, you know, a super powerful character. You, you have been toned down by the setting. And I, I do think that can be done. At the same time, I do think it's very, you got to be very careful. Because at least for me, if I'm playing an RPG and I'm coming up against monsters every three seconds, or or player or you know non-player characters every three seconds that wouldn't be popping up in a world like that. Um, it, it it can be very off you know off-putting to me. Um, so I, I, I do I do agree that sometimes it can be done with 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 a, with a god character and it can be done right. However, I would be careful about overpowering everything else because I'm, I'm sure everybody here has played games where you're a god and everything else is a god, and after ten minutes of playing, you feel very bored. Um, so, sure. it's the you're you're in like fantasy Godzilla. Everything's a big monster. Sounds like ripped. Um, I mean, I, I do appreciate like I, I I still can appreciate I guess the the chosen one plot if they just 
fully embrace campy high fantasy and just like we're just gonna enjoy ourselves for a little bit um and also self-awareness uh if you're trying to tell a more doubtful and serious story i you can't you just can't go with it i'm gonna go back with the point i made earlier about player agency i think my issue with the chosen one is that um fundamentally it relies on the concept of fate which is to say predestination and predestination says you really have no choice. And um, I think I think uh, RPGs have to be about meaningful choice. And so any sort of predestination chosen one plot line is ultimately destructive of the good, the goodness that you can get from the game. So uh, I don't remember who it was who said that you know the, you know you need to have the sort of like you're the chosen one, but you can still fail. Uh, I think it's great, but um, I think. Uh, uh, you know anything else it's, it's just a, a way of railroading and trying to justify it in the world and it's bad for the same reasons railroading is bad maybe it's a little less bad because it's associated with the metaphysics of the world but i think it's still really bad and like what if you want to hang out with satan that should always be an option yeah sure. totally rolling stones I mean, did the chosen one could change sides or just go hang out in a bar and gamble that is that is an interesting mechanic I would like to see implemented in RPGs where there is a choice of a complete turn of the character's alignment. I, I've never seen that happen in a game. So, where the, the Sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say that's why we got rid of alignment. <laughs> I, I just don't play with it anymore. Same. No, that's, that's a good point. <laughs> I mean, I, mean I, I felt like it was so, I, I mean, you talk about character agency and alignment was essentially meant to cause people to conform to a set of rules because you would say, well, it doesn't make sense. Now, um, I still have certain functions. I mean, there's consequences to your actions, right? So like when we're playing, um, if a druid willfully um tries you know does something that uh to kill a tree or to harm a forest um they're going to lose their druidic powers that's a consequence but it doesn't mean that they can't decide to be evil that is a good point i liked uh there was an old mechanic in star wars d6 the very first edition by greg kostikian um, for every dark side point you accumulated, you had a cumulative one in six chance of turning to the dark side and losing your character. But for every dark side point you accumulated, you also got a plus one bonus die on all of your force powers. So you became more powerful more quickly by getting uh, dark side points. And so as a player of a Jedi, it encouraged you to sort of be flirting with the dark side and tempted by its power. Um, although always afraid that you'd you know, get that one extra point that would make you lose your guy and you'd become an NPC. I thought it was just a really ingenious mechanic um, for for reflecting this kind of like heel turn uh, uh, game. I, I want to steal it and use it in another game. That sounds phenomenal, by the way. Something along those lines. <laughs> There's all these Star Wars memes in yeah. the background on the channel <laughs> that are cracking right up. <laughs> There, there have been some other variations of that mechanic, right? Um, so, Call of Cthulhu had, you know, we, you were basically an investigator and you were looking to try to gain this knowledge. And sometimes you could gain knowledge that would help you in your investigation, but it would always drive you closer to being insane. Um, and in Cyberpunk, 
um, you also had a similar thing where if you upgraded your character with too many cybernetics, you would lose your sanity. Right. Um, well, you lose all your humanity. It's it's like or yeah, humanity. Not exactly yeah. like shit on the walls, gibbering crazy. You're the Terminator. Yeah, and it was interesting because it, it actually reduced your empathy stat, which was like your charisma. So, so the NPCs would gradually begin to be less and less pleasant to you, et cetera. It was, it was really good. And vice versa. Right. You became more like the, uh, the, the Terminator. <laughs> what I noticed was that as a GM, as I started to describe people liking the players less in Cyberpunk, the players naturally started to act in more jerkish ways. It was it was a really interesting feedback loop. Like if someone had a really high empathy, I would always describe them as, oh, he gazes at you with admiration and his handshake is warm and firm. And if they had a really low empathy, I'd be like, his his stare is arrogant. And when you touch him, you know, the clamminess of human flesh grosses you out. And just like, just those little descriptions changed the way the players acted. It was really a fascinating kind of a, a thing. It's a great game if you want to find out how sociopathic and terrible your friends are. <laughs> that is a terrifying concept. I'm not sure I do. I had to stop my last cyberpunk campaign because I, I was I was literally freaked out by my players. They teamed up with a genocidal AI and were like, oh my let's, let's just go full Borg and we'll take out the human race and you know we'll rule as cyborg gods. I was like, it's been a really good game. The last session, they like nerve gassed an AI conference because they wanted to make sure no one knew how to stop them. I was like, all right, good campaign, guys. Let's move on. Let's <laughs> I don't know if anybody else ever has these horrifying realizations that their players would have been Dr. Mangala in the 1940s. But... Well, on the flip <laughs> side completely going off topic for 30 seconds um that is one of the most fascinating things for me about studying history and uh, you know looking at you know group of people during certain periods of time which is something very interesting because most people will say you know you i could never be one of them i could never do this and the reality is is we all have the propensity of put into the right situation to do both great good and great evil and it's very interesting that when you see people pushed in that perspective, even some of the nicest people you will ever meet, that those things start coming out in nature stories. And it's just very, very terrifying when you were hit with that realization. Oh, yeah. I, I ran a campaign once where I purposely set it up that the players were evil, but I didn't tell them that. I gave them really cool titles. They were the Emperor's Talons and cool uniforms, and they had unlimited police power to quote unquote, do what was needed to protect the empire. And, um, you know, and, and two thirds of the way through the campaign, you know, they were book burning and torturing people and, you know, killing everyone who crossed them. And um, one of them was like, you know, your game's really black and white morality, empire good, you know, bad guys bad. And I was like, is it man? And I kind of laid out all of the things that they had done. And, um, and just like everyone in the room got really ashen faced as they realized uh, essentially, you know, what they had become, you know, just in the name of being the cool emperor's talents. Wait a minute. How many... Are we the buddies? <laughs> what, I'm sorry, many... someone said something in a funny voice. I didn't hear it. I said, wait a minute, are we the buddies? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. It's scary See, how you uh, Unrelated's got the gift. There it is. Are we the baddies? 
but but yeah that is the um that is the trick right is people don't they're easily manipulated by things like that and they slide into it um and it's actually it's kind of unfortunate because it seems like it's more rare that people um are able to step back from themselves um and sort of see things for what they are i guess Agreed. It takes a lot of uh, self-reflection and a lot of mental fortitude and maturity to be able to self-analyze with with detaching yourself mentally from your ego and having not only then an accurate you know representation of reality, but then on that having the will to act. Because most people, even if they have an accurate you know view of what's going on, they don't necessarily have the will to act. I've played with people who put more thought into the actions and morality of their characters than their own real life actions and morality. I, yeah. I agree. Yep. People really <laughs> can grow from, from playing a game. Have, have any of you ever played in a, a long-term campaign with people that you also work with or like they're in your military unit or something like that? I've done that and found it really fascinating to see the corollaries of behavior in the game and then reflected in the real world. Like you can learn interesting things about yourself and other people from it. I have not had that experience, although that sounds like a blast. Sounds like a nightmare after you (laughs) TPK them or there's like a loot disagreement, a lot of inner office conflicts. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It can be, it can be a big bloody mess. Uh, but it, it's also really interesting to find out, you know, that uh, if, if you know, one of your co-workers is, you know, completely spazzing out just because his character lost half his hit points, he's, you know, probably not the one you want to give the big sales contract that's super stressful to. Yeah, or have, like, <laughs> genocidal tendencies. We, true so, story, we are, are, for whatever reason, every time I've ever done that, the people in marketing are always the ones that are truly chaotic evil. <laughs> So does me. <laughs> is this sort of a uh, pitch to have a, a game as a uh, an actual interview, like a job interview? I'm a good idea. I'm 100% for putting um, D&D as conflict resolution exercises weekly on your resume. It, it's a very good social experiment. I actually had that. I listed team building exercises on the company um, calendar and reserved company space for that. And one day the CEO rolled in to see what these meetings were that were so popular that were happening every Wednesday. <laughs> and he, he, walked, he walked in on me awesome. literally as a D20 is rolling out of my hand. And he walks in, he's like, what's this team building meeting? And like it goes, kadoosh, across the table. And he says, are you guys playing Dungeons and Dragons? And I'm like, Oh, no, it's a retro clone called Adventurer Conqueror King. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that may- oh, oh, okay then. <laughs> and he just kind of, and he kind of just looks at me and he's like, "Carry on." And the uh, the next company meeting, actually, there was like a shout out to uh, he's like, and some of the really fired up people on this company have created a D and D club because they're just really good spirited about being here. And I was like, "Oh, thank God!" <laughs> wow. Yeah, adventures in D and D corporate worlding. No, note to self: if I ever have a large company to make D and D mandatory once a week. Thank you for that. <laughs> right, you know, it'd be awesome. You make your middle managers be the GM. 
No, you make the people care about the company more by doing that. It makes them put in a lot more work and then it gives them a little bit of time to relax when otherwise they would be working. I would imagine the productivity output blows away what they lose in that. Totally. I would like to subscribe to your newsletter. (laughs) Correspond levels and being party MVP with raises and promotions. That's not corrupt at all. But so you get experience for, or you give experience for kickbacks. Or you just delete or replace your entire HR and performance review system with an experience point system. And, you know, instead of having uh, 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 projects, you have quests, just go all in. I think that could really happen in a dystopian sense. Yeah, that's, that's actually a terrifying concept. Like social social yeah. credits. Score. Yeah, do you have to like duel the guy at the top, or? There's a company I, I know of actually in the Bitcoin space that's doing that. They're gamifying. Um, they they have a hierarchy free company and everything is gamified, and done sort of on a, a social points basis. So, kind of kind of dystopian. Yeah, that is pretty horrifying. Actually, talk about a dystopian future. Well, it is almost 2020, right? Cyberpunk yeah. 2020. I'm yeah, but it's not as plans. cool as it was in the yeah in the game. It was cool, right? It was like, oh yeah, we're gonna hack these things and so on. And and now getting hacked is is uh, yeah, not so That's great. We just have to make hope punk real. Make what punk real? Hope punk. Hope punk is that like a happy utopia? It's um. It's a bit like, it's a bit like cyberpunk, but it's, there's always hope. Your individuality matters. You're an important person. It's, it's much That's, less. That sounds like. It's much less we're fighting and, uh, and never, it's much less we're fighting a hopeless, never ending war. That sounds like hippie stuff though. Hey, hippies can hack. I <laughs> <laughs> really do. Wow. Did we have a fifth topic? Uh, We did not. That was it. Oh. Uh, Bad mouthing Pex while he can't hear us or end his away. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I guess we can go ahead and uh, do our. uh, We can talk about our. What we do and, you know, our self. promotion or whatever we want to do before we jump to Q&A. Let's do it. All right. Um, well, since I was like first on the list, I'm going to like skip that and let somebody else go first this time. Uh, do we, do we uh, want to work from the bottom backwards just to make Pex angry since he's not here to enforce any rules? Yes. <laughs> All right. Bottom. Okay, right. I guess who's going first then, me? Uh, yeah, I think that's you, Smunchy, because you didn't even yeah. get to roll, did you? I didn't. Nope. That's a hey, you should roll. I want to see what you roll. <laughs> All right, let's see what happens. Uh, what's the command here? Is it slash... Slash roll... I don't know. Yeah. Mm, no. Close. That wasn't Godspeed. It. No idea. <laughs> I skipped that part. I happily took last. 
Okay. There you go. All right, you got an 11. Yep. Somebody here critically failed. I don't remember. No, yeah, it was me. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I don't know. It's just, a, it's just a, you know, it's representative of my life. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess I'll, I'll start um, promoting here. Yeah. So um, right now, actually, if you want to watch one of our games, that's going to Kickstarter April 23rd. It's called Paths World of Adia. Um, you can actually watch it live right now. Uh, they are playing it on Nerdalopedia, twitch.tv slash Nerdalopedia. Um, they're, they're prepping as we speak. They're getting ready to go. So that should be a fun time. Um, you can check out the game at pathsgame.com uh, or smunchygames.com. And actually tomorrow we are releasing our final testing for the game. It's closed, closed beta for this module. Um, we're going to send out documents to everyone that signs up. And I'll put both those links in here. And uh, the module that people will be testing is actually the one that they're playing right now um, is going to be a Kickstarter exclusive as well. So uh, let me get all these links in here. There you go. And we're going to have, I think, around between, I don't know, somewhere like five to... 20 different live streamers streaming the game between tomorrow and April 20th. So that's pretty cool. Um, and that's it. Cool. Thanks. Um, yep. It looks like Ari. Um, again, I'm, I'm Ari. Um, I'm one of the co-owners of Dancing Yak Miniatures for a small company um, right now getting off the ground. We will be launching a Kickstarter within the next month. Um, we will be producing 10mm and 28mm abysmal dwarves and hobgoblins, also known as chaos dwarves. Um, we are affiliated with the Ninth Age, which we hope you use the rules and support their beautiful system. Um, and you're free to use it with whatever RPG or tabletop game you, you play. Um, we hope to be expanding after this. We have several other um, creators um, with different companies that we have made agreements with to be hosting their models, and we hope to bring many more models from between 3mm to 54mm um, for your enjoyment. The Kickstarter will be in about a month. Um, you, you can find us right now at Dancing Yak Miniatures. Uh, that is Dancing Yak Miniatures on Facebook, and we will have a website up within the next couple of weeks. Um, of the same name, www.dancingyakminiatures.com. Uh, please feel free to send us any messages, and we, we hope to hear you during the comments section. Question. Thank you. Uh, do you have any links uh, that you'd like to share with us? or I can post them up in a little bit. I'm actually at okay. Cold Wars right now. I'm in a convention room on a phone that's about to die. So Okay. Oh, wow. No problem. But there is, there is links, I believe, Funny. on my page under the discord you guys can go see it there there is a page okay. with a bunch of the stills cool right. that's dancing yak right yes oh. dancing yak miniatures and you can find us on facebook right now if you just typed in dancing yak to the search we will be one of the first ones up there all righty um well uh bear uh, hi, I'm Bear. I'm a real-life bear in the woods. Um, I just have some <laughs> recording equipment. Um, I'm not affiliated with anyone. Uh, oh, uh, wait, no. Wait, 
there are some losers that I do this podcast with. Um, it's called <laughs> fuck. Hold on, I got it written down here somewhere. Uh, strange gourds, strange gourds. Um, I'm just, I don't really care for it. Just kind of waiting for my contract to run out. Um, because it's on my contract that I have to post these links. Uh, they gave me honey. Always read the fine print, people. Sitting on my own brand, by the way. We can move on. Oh, okay. Pretty good podcast. Listen to it, please. Yeah. All, really all enjoy it. Are. It's a big part of my life. Okay. Auto Arc. Uh, hi, it's uh, Alex McCreese. I'm the studio director, lead designer for Autark. Um, if you have enjoyed my comments on game mastering and philosophy, if you've enjoyed my comments on game mastering and philosophy, you can check out my book, which I will share with you in one moment as soon as the link comes up. Uh, I also just published a book by Courtney Campbell of the Hack and Slash blog called Irie of the Dread Eye for the uh, Adventure Conquer King system, which uh, is also uh, worth a look, and I'll provide a link for that. Uh, in general, if you like um, mass combat, domain warfare, uh, and old school D&D, I hope you will check out Adventure Conquer King system. Uh, cool. Uh, was that it, Alex? Yeah, that's all. Okay. Um, well, uh, yeah, I'm Brian, uh, the uh, lead game designer at uh, Lost Relic Industries. Uh, I say lead game designer, but there's really two of us. It's me and my wife, Liz. Uh, Liz is a publishing assistant, editor, and really chief of all the other things. Um, Lost Relic Industries is making a new RPG, a fantasy RPG in a low fantasy setting. Yay. Um, it's called Swords and Shaman of Songguard. You can find it on Drive-Thru RPG and RPG Now. It is uh, pay what you want, free to download. Uh, it's a fun game, uh, at least I, I think so. Uh, and if you like hairy elephants and people in prehistoric settings and tribal elves and all the Bronze Age and Iron Age barbarians and brutes um, and all that goodness, uh, you would love Swords and Shamans. So uh, come check us out. I love hairy elephants. Yeah, me too. I've always been fascinated by them since I was a kid. <laughs> That's not um, not like a gay slang term like bear, is it? No. <laughs> is, is bear a... Never mind. Okay. Um, Just checking. Well, no. I mean, man yeah, just I'm, likes hairy elephants. There's nothing to it. Just hairy elephants, guys. I'm no trying to be careful here. Um, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, mammoths, you know, and saber tooths and um, woolly rhinos and all that stuff. 
and giant sloths. So uh, I think we're done with the shameless plugs. And we can probably open it up for some questions from the audience. Uh, I'll go ahead and unmute y'all and probably regret it because I'll, yeah, won't figure out how to mute you back. But here we go. I told you tech, Pex was away. So we will play. And if you uh, want to ask a question but don't want to say it in chat, uh, feel free to um, you know just type it in the channel here, and we can field those. I seem to be having some difficulty unmuting. I think that's just because people are locally muted. Yep. Oh, those, yeah. that's so tricky. I mean, yeah. you can't make people talk much as I'd like to. You've been unmuted this whole time in silent? <laughs> Restraint, no. I have it. No, you don't. Don't lie. Shut up. You don't know me. <laughs> yeah, that's what you think. Yes, you can, because okay. some people like bad art. Uh, Looks like we have a question from three orcs. Um, if you're naturally bad at art, can you get work? I, I definitely think so. I mean, Rob Liefeld was in business for so many years, um, pretty successful with his stuff, and he didn't really even have to try. I think there's a nice for bad art. Depends what type of bad art. I would pay three orcs uh, like in beef jerky for some of his drawings if if my other artists just fall through. How about just pay three orcs for extra drawings? Three orcs, are you like asking for a friend who's bad at art? <laughs> I think three orcs should get a job as a... Um, a table reporter, kind of like a court reporter where they're drawing people in the courthouse, but instead he's kind of drawing the scene, just keep everything going. Great way to go and put it into the character records. I'd have you at my table. Is it a big table? Because it has to accommodate three orcs. So, uh, yeah. It looks like Mage has a question if we're done uh, mocking three orcs. Would you like three to ask the question jumpsuit. in the chat, Mage? Or in the channel? I have no question. That was just a moat to you, so if you have a question, you know, raise your hand, just like in class. Oh. <laughs> All right, we're going to have to start calling people out. I tried that once. Nobody said anything. Really? Yeah. All right, Puddles, do you have a question? I have a question. What if you based your character's hit points on the number of times um, people are allowed to hit you before you say before you tap out? So every your character would essentially be based on your pain tolerance. 
Is that not the best idea ever? But what about adrenaline or, uh, you know, some other things like that? that completely well, I mean, I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure when you're getting slapped by <laughs> your fellow players, you've got plenty of adrenaline coursing through your system. It also simulates combat. It's perfect. So, so there are systems that simulate um, the number of times you can be wounded. It, is that what you're implying? Sure, why not? Yep, let's. Yep, that's what I was yep, implying. Yep. Definitely, oh, that's really? what I'm, I'm going with. That. Okay, because yeah, so so some systems, um, you know, you can you have like wound pools, and you can only have like so many wounds, um, where you're not actually rolling for damage. And I think that works uh, pretty well, particularly for games that um, you don't want to. Uh, I guess you know the where you want combat to be uh, fairly fatalistic, fairly meaningful, um, where you're not getting in a lot of combats. Um, Fate uses a system like that. However, I think it can be challenging if you're doing the, the classic dungeon crawl where, hey, let's go fight 100 lizard men. Um, suddenly that hit point pool looks a lot nicer. But what about permanent injury? Because that kind of builds off of the, the idea of there's a set number of hit points. Whereas, you know, you're, you're getting hit in the, the leg X number of times, eventually the, the, the leg won't be able to hold up to further injury. Yeah, and I think Fate actually addressed that as well. And so did Cyberpunk. Um, because in Fate, I think that once you get so many wound slots, you can choose to take a disadvantage. Um, where you can say, oh, you know, well, my leg got broken. Um, in this conflict or something, uh, to avoid taking a wound that would otherwise, you know, push you uh, to death or whatever. Um, I think Cyberpunk also addressed that somewhat in the uh, hit location system, where they said if you took uh, too much massive—I don't remember exactly how Friday Night Firefight worked—but if you took too much massive injury to a limb, is anybody else remember this? I vaguely remember from reading yeah. through that something got destroyed. Yeah. Or at least damaged heavily. And that's always been one of the things that I felt was a little weird about, um, say weird, but, you know, in, in uh, the older D&D uh, &D style systems was that people would ask me, so am I wounded? And when they offer that up, I'm almost compelled when I'm DMing to feel like, you know, I want to say, uh, something you know it's it's like when do you do that that's a good question um and also how do you keep it in a way where you know the broken leg on one character isn't going to spend three hours hobbling home or to a to a, to a mage or something to heal it yeah uh, right absolutely i i think that was one of the reasons why they went with points right was because it kind of took those complications out but on the other hand when people want story you know they want to role play um you know some some other systems sometimes i think are a little bit better at it Okay, any more questions?
Is this going to be a stand-up fight or just another bug hunt? <laughs> Are there such things as stupid questions? Is a 10-hour <laughs> game session too long? Uh, no, it's not. Uh, I've run, I think the longest was a 12- or 13-hour game session. We had a blast. Really? You need to make sure, though, there's food on hand and that people are given adequate breaks during something like that. Otherwise, that, that would be hell. Um, but if you if you do it right, that could be a lot of fun. Got to make sure the chains on the chairs are solid, too, so they don't just rail away. <laughs> yeah, but that only works the first time. Then they start bringing hacksaws every time. So 10 hours with um, friends and known companions or 10 hours with random people at a uh, convention? Just have a Doritos trough. For me, it was friends, with friends for sure. It wasn't, it wasn't random. Was cool. Yeah, because I don't think I could... I, I don't know that I have the uh, GMing endurance um, to try to read... Uh, a bunch of random people for 10 hours and keep them engaged. I mean, I'm just going to be straight up honest. I think it would be much know. harder with random strangers. 100% agree. Much harder. I don't think I have the power to keep myself interested in being conscious for 10 hours, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> you just fall asleep at work or... Don't tell my boss. <laughs> yeah, but what do you do when you are your boss? You can't fall asleep at work then. Why not? Paid disciplinary leave. Sounds like a policy. <laughs> we already have paid wargaming time, so uh, I think paid leave also would be, be a real killer. Yeah, I think we did a lot of those like really long sessions uh, when I was in high school. Um, and you know, where we just get over and we go over somewhere and we'd start playing until the gameplay got almost ridiculous because we were all so tired. And you know, you'd see the sun come up. Yeah, for me, the longest games were during college when uh, we would just you know get started at noon and keep on going until we essentially were so exhausted from Mountain Dew crashes that we couldn't go on. Yeah, really, no hobby is too long until you have to pay rent. This is a very valid point. Yep. Or until you get married, I suppose. Much more valid point. Well, hey, I'm I'm married to the other game designer, so I'm doing pretty good over here. We all can't be blessed. Yeah, that was a, that was a, that was definitely a role of an eighteen brother. She uh, basically makes all this. If you download the the rule book and look at it, pretty much everything that doesn't suck that was because of her. Um, yeah. So I should be sending an email to her thanking her, not you. <laughs> Probably. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah. If you saw my first draft, wow.
Man, I can't believe we can't get more questions on a Friday night. Is nobody drinking? Uh, what's going yeah, on? Come on, guys. Like, are you, what, what are you guys doing? Like, you're there listening to us. Is there really nothing you can think of? Yeah, let nothing? me just select from this group of strangers. Nothing pre-informing me here. Procrastinator definitely has a question. I can feel it. Too busy knitting. Still talk while you knit. Still type text to speech or speech to text. Well, I pretty much missed the whole show. I'll ask, how did it go? Oh, hi, Pex. Happy birthday to you. You're saving us from ourselves. <laughs> uh, I arrived. Well, I was able to to speak, so that, that was that was five stars on my part. I think. <laughs> You, you left me in charge. We've said fuck at least three or four times. Under average. This is a family-friendly show. I didn't know that. No. I mean, people got families, but it definitely isn't friendly. Based on the other ones I listened to, uh, I think this is about the normal level for gratuity in a conversation. I think what what did we field two questions tonight? We should have just, should have just kept... I mean, were there any topics you didn't uh, finish off? We only had four topics. Um, we could have kept going, but I was you know trying to be cognizant of time rather foolishly. That and I was really eager for us to hawk our wares. Uh, the yeah. best part of the show. Yeah, and Bear thinks I'm into some kind of weird animal thing. Um, hey, I don't kick shame. Jeez. I mean, they're the one with the bear in the name. Hmm. Right. Exactly, I can't kick shame. You are the king. There, there is one other thing, if, if we have a second, that, I, that I'm curious to hear your guys' lady opinion on, um, is how do you attract the younger generation to more traditional gaming when there are such easy instant gratification routes such as either television or video games? And how do you, you know, with, with an aging population, and even though there has been a you know, revitalization, from people coming back into it or just getting into it, I, I haven't seen on the younger generation there being the same level of interest. And I, I am wondering how do you address that and, and find a medium ground, you know, to, to be able to get them in and at the same time not, not take anything away. Um, because otherwise I, I do feel to an extent that there is a clock ticking and that at a certain point, a certain portion of the population, which is the larger portion now, is going to age out of being able to play. And, you know, how do you fill that void? So I Wait, I'm going to be too old to roll dice? I can't see. I think the answer to that is that it's out of our hands as indie RPG creators. Um, the well-backed companies like Hasbro with 
Dungeons and Dragons and Magic the Gathering ultimately are the only ones that have the funds to invest in the advertising and the organized play and the um, uh, YouTube shows and so on that will reach the next generation. And um, unfortunately, if they drop the ball on that, it will have a big spillover for all of us. Um, but, you know, as a, as a person who sells a thousand copies of a book, I don't think it's possible for me to meaningfully move the needle in terms of whether or not young people think role-playing games are cool. And so I uh, more, or had, more or less target people who have already decided they play role-playing games and leave it to the bigger fish to make that effort. I think that's a very valid point. I think that answers the question very well. You know, I, I see that. I see that as from the opposite end of the spectrum. I see it from a person that plays but doesn't sell products. That kids, all the all the things you mentioned, TV, movies, um, you know, scheduled play, video games, they are not creative activities. They are time sinks. And when you expose a kid to RPGs and you do it from a story standpoint as opposed to from a war game or a tactical game standpoint, their imagination kicks in and they just want to do it. I would agree with that. But then it goes again back, how do you get into that well, if the older generation isn't isn't investing the time in the And that it's our responsibility to do that or you're gonna see it disappear like the old war gamers are all dying off and that and there's no replacement generation sure um i mean part of that is you know i joke but it's you know our, our language in the channel right this is a, a little bit later forum but you know you uh it's uh one is your content um suitable right for certain age groups and you know because when you're talking younger uh, you know, you want to make sure that you have suitable content for younger adults and not all, or not, not adults, but I mean, younger, like kids. Um, and, uh, in, in some cases, uh, that's going to be, uh, you know, people are just going to be, uh, edged out, you know, their, their game is not appropriate, you know, and, and that's just going to be the case, but there are going to be other games that are appropriate. Um, and I think that part of that is, you know, if, if we're going out to these conventions and we're doing these things, you know, um, as game masters, as uh, advocates of the hobby, then make it accessible um, and, you know, sort of do our part there. Um, if you get an opportunity uh, and you're running a game with a younger audience, then, yeah, you know, adjust that game, you know. But, you know, it doesn't mean change what you wrote, you know, it doesn't mean change what you're selling, but, but, it, you know, maybe, maybe go out to a local hobby store and set up a game that um, is age appropriate um, to draw in a younger crowd. Um, one of the things that I've done as a parent um, and, and my wife and I have done is uh, encourage, uh, we encouraged our daughters to read um, because it's a less passive way of um, absorbing a story than television or, uh, you know, even in, in, even video games, because video games now, you know, we talked about a lot of them are very point A to point B. You push a button and it does the next thing. Um, the book really 
um, causes them to engage and read. And then once they pick up that reading, then again, you know, you're, you're willing to do something now that's a little less uh, passive involvement in that storytelling. And, and I think that's what uh, you were hitting on earlier was, you know, that they actually want to do these things because those other forms of entertainment are kind of boring. Yeah. A lot, a lot of us are actually, a lot of people have experience um, getting new players into a game that they ran and had positive experiences. But of course, this is not enough of us doing it. Yeah, I, I started. Sorry, go ahead. I um, I I ran a game last last uh, year through the Village of Hamlet with a fourteen and a fifteen year old, and they're uh, perfect ex examples of what teenagers are like these days. Everything you talk about, that's them, and it totally blew their minds. They loved it. They were actually participating in a story, and they really got they got so much into it. They didn't want to leave the town. Which is unheard of when we were playing as kids. We just wanted to get to the dungeon as fast as we could because the town stuff was so boring. But for some reason, I guess it's the way I ran it, but they loved it. They just didn't want to leave. And I had to say, You guys need to get to the dungeon. You know, I'm only here for a couple of weeks on vacation. Let's get this going. But they were so enthralled. They were so excited. They they, they couldn't get enough of it. They want to play every day, 10 hours a day. And then I said, Okay, well, when I leave, when you guys go back to high school, all you got to do, I'm going on my experience. All you got to do is when you go there is find other people to play with, other friends. They're, they're, they're hidden. Just look for some dice they're carrying or a player's handbook or try to strike up a conversation and get into a group or a D&D group. Yeah, we're going to do that. Well, it's been a year and they haven't done nothing. All they do is sit there on their YouTube and cell phones and, and, and browse media all day long. They, they have no drive to do anything. You know, one one thing I, I guess I'll say we can probably do, and, and this is more us as people and not as game designers, but I think what holds the RPG hobby back more than anything else is that game masters are relatively rare and there aren't enough of them um, because each game master is the person who's actively incentivized to go out and, and build a group and recruit people to play. So I think the more you can train other people to be game masters and teach them how to do so and encourage them to start their own campaigns, I think the more success you'll have. and some of the people they recruit will be new players. You're absolutely right. That's what Adventures League's doing for Wizards of the Coast. They they actually they have scheduled, um, you know, legal whatever you call it, games that they run on a system that you can book in advance on their Warhorn website, and you can get into a game in almost any store in in the United States and get into a, a legal game and you're character sheet will be online and it'll be official and and they're and they're hiring dungeon masters to run these things through their internal club point system whatever but getting people involved and and they're really they're, i think they're in the forefront to getting more new players into 5e 5e but into role playing i mean how many of us got stuck with doing the dungeon master job because nobody else wanted it me, me, <laughs> it's either that or they don't play me it's the only way to get friends to play in my area. Um, nobody wants to read through books. Nobody wants to have to do the work. Nobody wants to have to put the foresight into it. Um, sure. It's very hard. Um, even if I'm providing the books to everybody, a copy to everybody, most people don't want to spend the time. If I owned a game company, I would be hitting the conventions, recruiting um, game masters, 
to 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 support you and to run tournament uh, run games at the local stores across the country and it's a ground up thing you know get Whoever the get yes. get the running get the running games in the stores and then have the players get involved with the game in that in that direction with the with the store support i think that's the only real way that's ever going to get more players into the into the hobby Yeah, absolutely. You've got to you've got to get out there at, almost at a grassroots, um, and and get people out there playing the games. Um, it's just hard uh, because you know, uh, um, as Ari pointed out, uh, it's a lot of work being a game master, and a lot of people become the game master by default. And so I don't know how many stories we probably all have of somebody having the books and wanting to play but then they become that awkward game master who wanted to really play so they're not a great game master at first and then they eventually grow into it um and and it, let's be honest you know there's it nobody's really getting paid to game master i mean maybe somebody is i i, I mean sure there's critical role and all that but um most of us aren't yeah and game mastering is very hard like how many hobbies do you know of that you have to have above average intelligence, above average emotional intelligence. You have to be creative enough to be able to, uh, you know, create content on a regular schedule. But you also have to be organized enough to be able to pull a group together, get them all in one time, friendly enough that everyone likes you, but enough of a disciplinarian that, you know, people show up and respect you during the game. Like it's a rare person who can really be excellent at all of those things. And um, I think it, it it just that to me is the single biggest uh, uh, obstacle towards getting more people to play because you need one of those people per four to eight players. Well, you just you just started a test upon the subject that I've been thinking about what what the, uh, what the problem is is the problem is the young generation that know anything about D and D. A lot of them are watching Critical Role, and and um, Matt Mercer um, sets a really high bar. sets a high bar. It's kind of like like a professional basketball player, you know, I'll never be that good. I'll never be seven foot five. I'll never be able to do a layup like he can. I'll never be able to be a good DM. Look at how good he is. I, I'm not a voice actor. I'm not an actor. I'm not an entertainer. I'm not a public speaker. I could never do that. When I was growing up, none of that even occurred to me. I just wanted to play and run, right. and run modules. I actually never watched an episode of Critical Role, so I, I I can't speak to how amazing he is or not. I have never I've heard other people say either. that. Well, I'm telling you, they they got over what three million watchers, and they're all most of them are younger generation players. That those are totally. watching yeah. that. Well, well, yeah. If there's yeah. anything holding people back, I mean, I would say that as a GM, um, probably the the majority of the years that I'd ever GM'd anything, I really saw. Uh, it's just, um, it's something that it takes a lot of practice and it's hard, you know, it's, it, like you said, it, there, there are a lot of disciplines that come together. Um, and there, there, um, are things like being able to, um, sort of interpret and read people's, uh, even just little tells that they might have at the table to indicate whether they're enjoying one thing or another as you bring it up because you're going to have to spin on a dime and deal with the fact that they want to do something that wasn't written. Yep, yep. 
And we're and talking about now. known places like conventions and gaming stores, but there's other avenues like college clubs and high school clubs and any kind of aftercare thing or libraries. I think it's funny that you mentioned, you know, you get forced to be the game, the game master because last summer Steve Jackson ran the, the fantasy trip Kickstarter. I hadn't played a role-playing game since the early 90s. I hadn't game mastered since the mid-80s. I saw that that was coming back. I was like, got on board, funded it. We got a Discord all set up where we all talk about it. There's all these people that have been playing it for 40 years. I haven't played it. I played it twice in 1981. October comes around. We got the PDFs as part of the Kickstarter. I'm like, okay, who's going to run the game so we can play? I'm running the game because nobody out of 200 other people would run the game. Exactly. Yep. Yep. Exactly. And so how and, many people you know, aren't playing the fantasy trip because of that? Right. But, and you know, it's coming back slowly, but it's a, you know, it's kind of a, a open world sandbox game. I have no idea what they're going to do from week to week. They show up. I don't even know which players are going to show up and we just wing it. And it, you know, that's kind of the way I've always run games, so it's fine with me, but it takes, like you say, practice, and I'm so rusty. <laughs> and when all else fails, bribery. <laughs> it's been the only way I've gotten a bunch of people into playing. Um, to be completely honest, bribing them with a unit or two and letting them paint it up. Um... <laughs> or bribing them with a meal or something. It's oh, gotten see, a good number of my friends into it. <laughs> Back in the day, I used to accept bribery. They could bring me stuff so I could run the game for them. Hey, uh, Cap, that's that. a, a really good point you just made about um, fantasy sort of being so saturated and, uh, and, and, and are the focus on fantasy really excluding so many people? Um, you know, the challenge I've run into every time I leave the fantasy genre is that if the genre that we're playing doesn't have really clear niches, the players end up getting at each other's throats because they feel like everyone is just the same as them. Like when I ran a Wild West game, it was like everyone's a gunslinger. So, OK. And, and, and they got really disenchanted with it quickly. The, the, so what I've been wrestling with is how do you take that niche protection that fantasy has and bring that into other genres like the only one that's done it well so far has been supers i think superheroes has niche protection i just got an invite from a buddy of mine who writes space opera and is an old D gamer and he's taken an old retro clone and rebranded it to play in his universe playing basically traveler or star frontiers you know kind of thing and he's created you know, character classes like what you're talking about so that there's little niches that are protected for, you know, your starting character. Really? It, it looks pretty decent. Yeah, that, that, I mean, I think that's exactly what's needed. You need those little niches, the exception-based mechanics or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, each, I think each. whoever can crack that code will will do quite well. Well, it's it's a very simplistic game based on, you know, his his world that he's set up with, I guess he's got three novels. He's working on his fourth novel now, which he's recorded completely voice acted audiobooks. Um, and uh, it, it looks like it might actually work. You know, he's got his, his second draft of the rules and he's going to start having a, a, 
uh, some play testing with other people to start with and uh, like next week. And uh, it looks pretty good. But, you know, I like that kind of stuff because, you know, you can, how many times can you play a knight? How many times can you play a wizard? How many times can you play a rogue before you want something else? So like you say, Wild West or pirates or samurai or, you know, space opera, something for some variety. Space turtles. Hey, we, we started out, we were going to, we were reading, um, uh, the, like moss flower and all those books, uh, where it's, you know, rabbits against weasels for, you know, kids just, it's different. It's something to do something different, something fun. I have an idea for an RPG about stuffed animals that defend you from the monster under the bed and the monster in the closet. Beautiful. I can't figure out who the target audience is, though, because the kids that have stuffed animals are too young to play RPGs, and the kids that are old enough don't want to be embarrassed by remembering that. I have a friend who... I wish I could remember the name. There's a board game that has a similar concept, and he's got a seven-year-old daughter, and they play that game with a very similar theme. Really? So maybe there's a sweet spot. Well, gang, I need to jump. It's uh, time for me to turn into a pumpkin here. It was a pleasure talking. Same, guys. Thanks so much for having me on the show. It was a, it was a real blast. Oh, it. All right. Good night, Mr. Pax. Good night, everybody. Cheers. The same. Good Thank stuff. you very much for having me on here. I appreciated it. I very much enjoyed you guys. I look forward to the next one. Indeed. Have a great night. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, thanks for having us, uh, Pex, and um, letting us kind of run wild here. I don't know what happened. I'll find out later. <laughs> Just say we knocked you out and like duct taped you to a chair, something. Yeah, usually. Uh, yeah. If you type the uh, the end command there, it'll cancel it out and toss you a link. Okay.